0: seat. Good morning. I'm going to lead us into uh, time and God's word from the book of Esther this morning. uh, Two ways. I want to talk about a question, then I want to talk about a situation or a circumstance. And uh, in the course of the message, I hope the question and the circumstance come together in such a way as to let you know why you're here and maybe what God expects of you now that you are here. So here's the question. It's a question that I ask with increasing frequency in my life these days. Um, I stand in front of my closet and I ask the question. I stand in front of the kitchen pantry looking at a shelf full of groceries and I ask the question. I stand in the workroom of church on one of the short days I work and ask the question. I then you used to ask the question when I was 20, once in a while when I was 40, but now that I'm what I am, I ask it all the time. <laughs> exactly why am I here? Why did I come here? What, what was I looking for? What did I need? Walk into a room without any idea of what it is you've walked there. Now, the circumstance. So Years ago, I was at a conference by one of the big-name preachers. I think it was Rick Warren. It sounds like Rick, at least, that um, was helping us as pastors understand how you deal with the situation of meeting a big-name preacher who you know you should know and who knows you, and he comes across the room at you. He sticks out his hand. He's going to say, hi, it's glad to see you. He uses your name, and you're thinking, what's his name, what's his name, what's his name? And Warren said, here's how you handle that. As he's coming at you, you put a big smile on your face, you stick out your hand and say, Hey, great to see you. How would you ever make out with that situation? (laughs) Because every preacher's got a situation. And they love to talk about it. And you figure if he talks about it long enough, I may remember who you are. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's inside stuff on preachers. You didn't need to know, right? So, is it possible that the question... What am I doing here? And the situation could come together in such a way as to benefit the family of God? Let's turn to the book of Esther and find out. We're going to begin by introducing the four main characters that will take place in the story this morning. Pretty much, folks, I'm simply going to tell the story as best I can from the book of Esther, chapters 2 through 7. We begin with Esther, chapter 2. When the virgins were assembled a second time, here's the first name, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Mordecai is a Jewish exile. He's a man who was taken from his home country, or at least his ancestors were. He is now a prisoner of war in Persia, doing the work of the Persian kingdom as a Jew. His work apparently was some minor administrative role that put him at the king's gate. So that's where we find Mordecai, the Jewish exile. We go on to read verse 20. Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. We have Mordecai, the Jewish exile, and Esther, his cousin, much younger, who was raised by Mordecai and who has been, by winning a beauty contest, much to her surprise, never thought it would happen, has become queen of Persia. Can you imagine that? She is queen of this amazing kingdom, 127 provinces. What her husband didn't know was that she was a Jewess, Mordecai's cousin and that she and her cousin Mordecai were going to play a role in his life he never expected. Now, it happens, we read at the end of the second chapter, that Mordecai is sitting at the king's palace, and while he's there, he overhears a plot that two men cook up to murder the king and seize the kingdom. Mordecai the Jew tells his cousin Esther the queen, hey, I heard these guys are going to try to kill the king. You ought to talk to your husband about this. She tells her husband, her husband takes steps to... Foil the plot, execute those who were going to kill him, and the story goes on. And we read at the end of chapter 2 that the king goes home that night and he writes in his diary everything that had happened. Just kind of puts it down, the whole story, about how some guys were going to kill him, but Mordecai saved him because he told Esther about the plot. So, on with the story and two more characters. It's time to meet the king. Esther 3, verse 1. After these events... King Xerxes, who is King Xerxes? Well, he's the king of Persia. If you read the first, if you were around the first couple of weeks, you know that he is a man with amazing appetites. He is filthy, rich. Being rich isn't filthy. It's what you do with being rich that makes you filthy, right? He is filthy, rich. He has a sense of pride. He has an ego so big that he's got to be the center of it all. He likes food. He likes drink. He likes women. He likes to have everybody know that he's in charge. Truth is, he can't handle his own wife. And that scares him. So he sees to it that he gets a better wife, a woman by the name of Esther. The story goes on this week. Hey, guys, any man who really thinks he's something... Should take a look at his wife and say, So what do you think? Let I me mean, read the story. All right. The last of the four characters, Haman. King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hameditha the Agagite. Agagite. There's a word. Elevating him higher than that of all the other nobles. So the fourth person in the story is this man named Haman. He's a nobleman, he has no small ego. He has an ambitious agenda. When he passes by, the king said, when Haman passes by, I want everybody to bow down. He is a name in the kingdom, and the only person who's higher than Haman in the story is Xerxes itself. And, of course, the only one who's higher in, in, the, in the story than Xerxes is God himself, whose name doesn't appear any, anywhere in the story. In fact, if you ask these four people who we, we talked about this morning... Mordecai, Esther, Xerxes, and Haman. Who's God? Haman said, well, I guess I am. Or Xerxes would say, I suppose it's me. Mordecai and Esther knew better. Well, Mordecai has a problem. The Jew who's told to bow down to the Persian nobleman Haman, has a problem. He will not bow down to him. Now, why wouldn't he do that? I mean, we pay common courtesy even in our generation in these kind of situations. I mean, if you were introduced to the Queen of England, you would probably probably bow or curtsy and then you would, you know, back away so you never turn your back to the Queen. All that protocol is observed even in our day. There was a protocol for the court of Xerxes and a noble man like Haman. And the truth is that when when Haman passed by, if the king said, you get on your knees, you got on your knees. But Haman said, I'm not going to... I'm not going to do that, Mordecai said. I'm not going to do that. Why not? Was it because he knew the commandments? He knew that you shall have no other God before me, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for either, all of that? Well, maybe, but, but maybe more, maybe more. See, if you read the bigger story in the Bible, and this is just one small picture of a much bigger story, you learn that what's going on between Mordecai and Haman is at least 500 Years old. See, Haman was an Agagite. Mordecai was a Benjaminite. Now, we're going to take just a moment and play this game that some people call Dutch bingo. You know, who's related to who and what they know and how they fit. Some of us are we're driven crazy by that stuff. Others of us say, hey, this is really good. But hang in there. If it's hard for you, just try to hang with the story. Haman the Agagite and Mordecai the Jew can't stand each other because 500 years before they walked this earth, they had ancestors who couldn't stand each other. In fact, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, you will read that Saul, the first king of Israel, murdered, killed, took in battle Agag, whose ancestor was Haman. So, way back when, Mordecai's people killed Haman's people in a battle. That was 500 years earlier. And even back further than that, according to the Word of God, 500 years before that, at the time of the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17... Saul's ancestors and Agag's ancestors, the Jews and the Amalekites, were at war with each other. When Israel came out of Egypt, around the year 1500, we're rounding off numbers here, right? When Israel came out of Egypt, a tribe came from the north of Canaan. Now, why they had to go that far? Who knows? Who knows? All the way down to the desert and Rephidim, the Amalekites from the north came down to take on the Jews in the desert. So for a thousand years, these two nations had been at each other. Five hundred years later, one king defeated another king. And then five hundred years later, Mordecai and Haman see each other. And Mordecai is not about to bow before his long, long time enemy. He won't do it. It's the stuff out of which stories are made. God has said in Exodus chapter 17, write this on a scroll to be remembered. Make sure Joshua hears about it. I'll completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites, against Agag, against Haman, from generation to generation. This is old stuff. Truth is, if you push it far enough, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter two, and three, where evil steps into a perfect universe, and in that perfect universe, it is said, there will be war between you and you, and the day will come when the heel of perfection crushes the head of evil, and that's being lived out at the time of the Exodus, at the time of King Saul, and at the time of Haman and Mordecai. That ancient, ancient enmity, enmity between the people of God and the people of sin, between a world caught in sin and a world that God desires to bring to redemption. It is the oldest story ever known. It's a story that continues to this day. So let me pause for just a moment. You know, Agag, Amalekites, how about Elmhurst? Is there any connection? I mean, do you get from then and there to here and now? Well, you do, I think. You do if you understand that the Bible is written to tell us the story between good and evil, that good ultimately triumphs. It will ultimate triumph. It, will, it does ultimately triumph. And the rule of Jesus Christ in this world is the announcement that there is to be an end to all evil in this world. Evil as seen in the Amalekites, in Agag, in Haman. Evil as it exists in our world today, as it exists in Elmer's. There will come a day when the head of evil is ultimately for- Forever done and crushed. It will happen. All right, the story goes on, right? Mordecai, Esther 4:14, Esther 4:1, Mordecai learns of all that had been done. Well, what did he learn? Mordecai learned that Haman, out of his hatred for him and the Jewish people, had paid a bribe to King Xerxes to exterminate all the Jews. He was going to get rid of Mordecai and all those people so that that ancient war would forever be done. Haman figures, here's my chance. He won't bow down to me. I'll see to it that not only he pays for it, but everybody else pays for it. And Haman says, I'm going to build a gallows. I'm going to get a pole 75 75 feet high, and I am going to stick the body of Mordecai on top of that pole. Ooh, it's bad stuff. I'm going to stick the body of Mordecai on top of that pole, and that will be the end of that man and his people. So... Haman bribes the king to issue a decree that on the 13th day of the month Adar it is open season on the Jews and anyone anywhere in the kingdom of Persia has free reign to exterminate anyone and everyone who is Jewish. Haman will take care of Mordecai. The Persian people will take care of the Jews. And Xerxes the king issues the decree. Mordecai learned of all that had been done. He's sitting at the gate, right? Tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. So in the palace, Esther doesn't know what's going on. I mean, she's in the palace, right? She's protected from all this stuff. Somebody says, you know, Mordecai is in bad shape. You ought to talk to him. She talks to him, what's the problem? He tells her what the problem is. And the two of them decide that something needs to be done. Mordecai lets Esther know that, look, you're queen. And if something here doesn't happen, you're going to die, I'm going to die, and all God's people are going to die. You've got to do something about this. But here's how he does it. This is what he says to her. Look at these words, Esther 4:14 is a theme of the day, right? This is the moment in which the question and the situation come together. Who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this, Esther? Who knows? You wonder why you're here? This is why you're here. You're not here because you're beautiful. You're not here because you won the king's favor. You're here because God saw something that needed to be done and he saw to it that a beautiful, talented, wise young woman would be ready at exactly this time for exactly this purpose. Now, I love Mordecai's wisdom. He doesn't say like a lot of us um, older people would say to the younger or parents would say to our kids, you know, God put you here for this reason. You ought to do something about it. He says you ever think, who knows? Maybe you've been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. He he lets her wonder. He lets her think. And of course, she comes to the right conclusion. She comes to understand that I'm chosen by this man to be his queen to please him in every way because I'm beautiful, but because there's something bigger at stake here. It is the salvation of God's people. And so she says to her cousin Mordecai in chapter 4, verse 16, you get together all the Jews who are in Susa, the city where they lived. You fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days. Ordinarily, a fast would last from sunrise to sunset. She said, no, three days, nothing, nothing, 72 hours, no food, no drink. You've got to help me with this. I and my maids will fast as you do and when this is done I'll go to the king and even though it's against the law and it was against the law the fact is unless the king said I want to see you you did not see him not even his wife even though it's against the law she says and if I perish I perish she had no illusions about the dangerous path that she was walking She knew protocol, demanded the king ask for her presence. She she couldn't ask to see him. And so she says to the people of God, you've got to help me with this. You've got to help me with this. I need help. The purpose of the fast is very clear. Listen to what she says. Fast for me. Don't fast for the king. Don't fast for Israel. Don't fast for this whole situation. You've got to help me. Do you think Folks, do you think that sometimes when we're at those back against the wall situations in our lives that the best thing we could do is to ask somebody else to to stand along with us to pray for us to fast with us? think that might be right? Do you think somebody who is uh, struggling with an addiction shouldn't have the body of faith that he or she is part of struggle with them and fast and pray for them? Go God be. Be with this man, with this woman. They're dealing with us. They need, they need your help. Could you pray or fast for somebody who's facing a major illness? Could you pray or fast for somebody who's got a career choice in front of them and they really don't know what to do? They don't know why they're in the situation they are in. Would you help them by simply coming alongside and saying, I'm not going to eat. or if done, I'm going to pray with you until this comes clear to you. Might we not pray and fast for the choice of a pastor to come alongside Greg and lead this church to the places that Rick so beautifully described? Well, in Scripture, the stage is set. Esther appears before the king. She is ready to do what she has to do. She comes in the first time, and the king is happy to see her. The king is happy to see her. In fact, he says, He says, so happy he's here so what can i do for you You know half the kingdom it's yours whatever you want she said well she's throwing a feast why don't you come to a party tomorrow i'd like to throw you a party king loves parties we'll see what kind of party queen esther throws so he comes to the party with haman and they're having a wonderful time says he's drinking he does a lot of drinking i mean read the story right Not good things happen when this king drinks. Um, Goes to the party, he's drinking. "What, what, what What can I do for you? And he thinks she's going to ask for something. She says, you know, this is such a good time. Let's do it again tomorrow. I want to throw another party. Have Haman come with you again tomorrow. The king says, okay, I guess we could do that. So they're off to another party the next day. At that party, Esther, in a wonderful way, Turns the tables. That's what the story is all about. See, in the meantime, as she's planning the parties, Mordecai is building the pole or the gallows on which he is going to hang Haman, and the king is reading his diary. And as the king reads his diary, he reads about that time way back when, when somebody wanted to kill him, and this Jew by the name of Mordecai got word to him that somebody's trying to kill him, and he could take care of that. And he's thinking, man, what did I ever do for Mordecai? What have have I ever done for this guy? So he asks, well, what should we do for the man who the king wants to honor? He asks the question, what should I do for the man the king wants to honor? When Haman is in the room, and Haman thinks, Well, who does a king want to honor? I guess it must be me. So, you know, well, uh, your royal harness, I suppose you could, you know, you might want to put him on a horse, it'd be nice. Get him a nice robe. A crown would be good. Put a crown on his head. And then, uh, why don't you have him led through the city? And, and you could just have it announced, this is the way the king deals with somebody he wants to honor. Say, Haman is already on the horse. He's wearing the crown. He's got the robe. He is feeling like somebody. And the king says, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's do it for Mordecai. What? What? Let's do it for Mordecai. And so this exiled Jew is sitting on a horse wearing the robes that should have been Haman's, wearing the crown that should have been Haman's, being told this is the man the king wants to honor, and Mordecai knows he's in trouble. So they're at the party, the second one. And they're talking about all this... And the king, drinking again, says the Bible, the king says, so tell me, what can I do for you? Up to half the kingdom will be granted. And Esther says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to spare my people. This is the way the Bible puts it. I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I'd have kept quiet. No such distress would justify disturbing the king. And Xerxes asks Esther, who is he? Where's the man who's dared do such a thing? And Esther says, the adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. And the tables are turned. Read the rest of the story. Haman impaled on a pole intended for Mordecai. Wow. So I ask myself, why am I here? Why here? Why now? What in the mind of Almighty God is there that I ought to be about? Could it be, my friend, that God has brought you into a relationship with Him, with her, with them for exactly this moment? You know what the situation is. Could it be that God has put you there for that situation? Could it be that the stuff that's going on in your home and family, your situation, is exactly the reason God has put you in that family? Because you know what it ought to be. You just need the courage to do it. Could it be that there's a situation at work that has got your back to the wall and you know what ought to be done and you know that you are probably the only person to do it and you're wondering, so God, is this why I'm working here doing this now? Esther never saw it coming. She didn't plan on being there. But she understood God has me where He wants me for this moment. That's the way God works. That's the way God worked at the time of the Exodus. That's the way God worked at the time of King Saul and Agag. That's the way God worked at the time of Haman and Mordecai. That's the way God worked 500 years after Haman and Mordecai. When one perfect person who knew perfectly what he was about in this world... And understood with absolute clarity the situation in which the Father had placed him, took on himself a cross and paid for the sins of God's people from the time of Moses till the time Jesus comes again, who understood, this is who I am and what I am to do. The Bible says, John 13, Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved those who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He knew why he was here He knew what God had in mind and driven by love for people like us. Jesus did what none of us can. He took our sin on himself, paid the price on a cross and in the grave, and is raised by the power of God for people like us. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Who knows why you're here, maybe it's for that only, for you to hear that one more time, that there is an almighty God whose love for you is so great that at just the right time to meet your specific circumstance, he sent his son into the world. That's the way God worked then. That's the way God worked now. And who knows? Maybe you've come to this place at this moment for exactly this time. Let's pray. What are we doing here, God? What are we doing here? What's the situation you're asking us to look at? What is it that we need to pay attention to? What do we have to take care of? Why have you made us who we are to do what we need to do. Make it clear. Give us courage. Help us stand alongside each other in prayer and concern and love to do only what you call us to do. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward, if you would, and receive the gifts. And I want you to uh, think once more of all that God gives us and... Understand this is, uh, this is a time simply to say thank you, God, and I love you. And the ways, one of the ways we do that is to simply lay before him all that he's blessed us with. The offering's going to be taken.